Welcome to the Space Witch Podcast, where we talk about what's happening in outer space and witch stories. I'm your host, Layla Martin, and just remember, there are no witches in outer space. If you ever start taking things too seriously, just remember that we are talking monkeys on an organic spaceship flying through the universe. Joe Rogan said that. And if you're listening to the Space Witch podcast on Spotify, you get a visual component. And I have shared an image of sun-like stars being born in the closest star-forming region to Earth. This image was captured by NASA's James Webb Space Telescope, and it reveals around 50 young stars, many close in mass to our star, giving us a glimpse into the early life of the sun. You'll see dark, dense dust cocoons still forming protostars, while an emerging stellar newborn is at the top center shoots out two new huge jets of molecular hydrogen if you want to learn more about this image go to nasa.gov the credit for this image that you're seeing if you're listening to the space switch on spotify goes to nasa isa CSA, and a bunch of other letters that I'm not going to go into right now. The image processing credit does go to Alessia Pagan. Great name, great name, Alessia Pagan. And the image source is from NASA, web.nasa.gov. I talked before in what I call Astro Academy 101 about the Outer Space Treaty, and I've also talked about the Honda Accords, the Artemis Accords, the Overview Effect, Anthropogenic uh, Climate Change, Charles David Keeling. So there's a couple things that are pretty cool. If you don't know what the over-effect is or why the OST matters or any of that, um, you can listen to previous episodes. I try to label each episode um, the highlights and what I'm discussing so that you can just scroll through. If anything is of interest, have a listen. But in regards to the perspective of the overview effect, so the overview effect, you're looking at Earth from space. And from space, we see things differently. One example is our ocean from a celestial vantage point. So we're looking at Earth from outer space. We recognize that there's only one, one singular global ocean that covers 71% of Earth. And yeah, it's partitioned into distinct geographic areas, but... You know, from Earth, our planet's surface 
it's been divided into countries which separate us from one another and then there's a mirage of different social constructs including race and caste and these categories they shape opportunities access to resources and social mobility on our planet which has led to discriminatory practices unequal treatment based on perceived differences in physical attributes and so if you're looking at the earth from space you see <laughs> there's just one ocean and it's sort of funny when you grow up you know and you learn all the different names of the oceans but these are just names that we've assigned and boundaries that we've created but they're not they're not really real that's just such a uh, it's such a crazy thing to think about so when you when you consider the overview effect and then you reconsider the way that we have divided up earth and the way we consider earth i think the overview effect is a really neat way to have a reconsideration of earth and that the boundaries exist but they're also always changing you know if you consider all of the conflicts happening on earth right now it they're you know territorial conflicts and boundaries are always being renegotiated and it's just interesting to think about earth from space and gosh we have this opportunity in everything that we're doing with it so if we move away from what we discussed before about you know the OST and the overview effect and Leo Mio and Gio remember Huey Dewey and Louie from DuckTales <laughs> and um, the lucrative orbital slots on um, geostationary orbit and all of those things and then we kind of move on to what I call like Astro Academy 201 um, so what is a space theorist <laughs> it kind of sounds like silly right like it's a made-up kind of thing but um, I think it's important to distinguish what kind of space theorist I am and what I am not um, because whenever anyone hears that I work in outer space or I research outer space they you know usually think it's pretty cool but they get it mixed up with um, an astrophysicist but I don't I don't do that I don't study that um, so I'm not an astrophysicist <laughs> I I don't study the physical properties and dynamic behavior of celestial objects and phenomena and when I when I talk about my research as a space theorist it's um, one of the first questions I get asked <laughs> is, do you believe in aliens? <laughs> and um, I think it's kind of funny, actually, because, um, yeah, that, that's one of the main questions that I get asked is, do you believe in aliens? And so I think that the concept of extraterrestrial life is intriguing and a really popular topic of discussion but aliens are not my research focus and if you're genuinely interested in a scientific perspective of possible extraterrestrial life and objects from outside of our solar system then I highly recommend that you google Avi Loeb. Um, Avi is well known for his research at Harvard University and he's made significant contributions to the field of astrophysics 
Um, note notably, he speculated on the possibility of interstellar objects passing through our solar system, which um, were evidence of intelligent alien technology. And beyond the possibility of ET, uh, Avi's research extends to black hole dynamics and the first stars. And back in the day, at one point, um, considering the breadth and the depth of his expertise, Dr. Loeb was on my shortlist, which is like in parentheses my wish list um, as a thesis advisor. But um, there were two main factors that played a role in the decision making process of why he was not my advisor. It's from, because um, my primary focus is on space culture, which is really different from pure astrophysics. And at the same time, um, Dr. Loeb was not actively accepting advising roles. <laughs> so it's again like my wish list. But I rem remember I did reach out to him and he was very gracious and he gave me a couple um, different uh, recommendations for other people. And so yeah, if you're if you're interested in, in aliens and you want to um, get uh, thoughts from someone who is really very very bright, very well respected, and um, gosh, just fantastic. Um, look up. Let me hang on. Look behind my bookshelf. So, Dr. Loeb. Um, the one of the books I have right here. It's called Extraterrestrial. The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. And it's called Provocative and Thrilling Loeb Asks Us to Think Big and to Expect the Unexpected. So, um, yeah, the Nobel Laureate in Economics and Pulitzer Prize winners. And he's, he's kind of a big deal. <laughs> so, um, and then... Before we move on, I think it's a really good place to share one of my favorite people. He's a very well-known astrophysicist, and his name is... Let me do my drum roll. Jonathan McDowell. Yay! Jonathan's contributions to astrophysics bridge the gap between abstract cosmic phenomena and tangible understanding. So when we speak of black holes and quasars and x-ray sources within galaxies, it's really easy to get lost in space. That's pun intended. Um, Jonathan, Dr. McDowell's research brings clarity to these complexities, and he's currently um, at the Center for Astrophysics, and he works on the Chandra team. Um, Chandra is not a lady, she's a telescope, providing invaluable insight into high-energy regions of the universe. And if you're curious about the universe's grander narratives and profound, broad questions which astrophysicists like Dr. McDowell seek to answer, the Center for Astrophysics, um, there's a website and it's just a little area called Big Questions. I think it's a really fantastic starting point. Um, the information is wide-ranging wide and it's accessible, and if you're, um, if you're interested in these kind of things or if you have kids that are smart, <laughs> or maybe they're not smart and you want them to be smarter, um, it's, it's definitely, there's some really neat, uh, neat things to look at on the CFA's Big Questions website, so there. 
the next time that you're at your local neighborhood pub and you're introduced to a space theorist who's focused on cosmology, should you ask them if you can get an appointment to get your hair done or your nails done? No, because they didn't go to beauty school. Cosmologist, not cosmetologist. So cosmetology school, they'll do your hair and your nails. And um, cosmologist, cosmologist. They study the universe, including its origins, evolution, structure, dynamics, and eventual fate. So theorists in this field ponder ideas like the multiverse or cosmic inflation theory. So if you're a Marvel fan, you may consider how a cosmologist would have weighed in on the latest multiverse plot. So we want to think about things that are kind of trippy and mind-blowing and sort of rabbit hole-esque. That's a cosmologist. It's pretty cool, huh? Astrobiology is awesome. One of my friends in this field sent a case of fancy French wine up past the Carmen line. So together with a team of astrobiologists, they observed how space radiation and microgravity affected wine components during the aging process. Sante! Cheers to that. What's more, astrobiologists theorize about life beyond Earth and the conditions that might support it. Their theories may range from the potential for microbial life on Mars to the possibilities of complex life forms in exoplanets' oceans. Hmm. Okay, here's a really cool example. Remember that movie The Martian? When Matt Damon's character gets stranded and to survive, he improvises a farm inside the habitat using Martian soil fertilized with the crew's poo, and he cultivates potatoes. An astrobiologist named Andy Weir wrote the book that turned into the movie, directed by Ridley Scott. Andy would have uh, likely weighed in on an ex as an expert to ensure that those scenes were like legit, both in terms of the dialogue used as well as the imagery that you saw. Check out Andy's newest book. It's called Project Hail Mary. And I'm going to add him to my cool list. Um, you can find him at andyweirauthor.com. I read something that, about Ryan Gosling being slated to produce and star in a film adaptation of one of uh, Andy's projects, which makes a lot of sense because The Martian was awesome. Now we're going to move on to space law and policy. These theorists, attorneys, and policymakers consider the legal and policy implications of space exploration, including questions about ownership, resource utilization, and international cooperation in space. So in a future podcast, I'm going to talk more about the Outer Space Treaty and consider modern considerations of space law and policy, but that is not today. If you're listening to the Space Witch podcast, thank you. If you're listening on Spotify, you can see something I shared, which I think is funny. 
It's from the Epic Tales of Captain Underpants in Space. And the caption, the caption of the screenshot that I show is in French because that's what I was watching it in. Um, <laughs> yes, watching Captain uh, Underpants to practice my French because when you watch kids' shows, it's easier to understand the language. <laughs> and so you'll see the, the, uh, the caption is in French, but <laughs> in English, it says, if you've got fries, you've got to share them. That's space law, and that's funny. So space ethics, um, that is an area where, um, that's funny, if you've got fries, you've got to share them. It's space law. Space ethics includes theoretical considerations about the ethical implications of space exploration and colonization. Space ethicists say that ten times. I think I can speak better. I've had two surgeries since the accident, and I notice I don't have as much of a drawl. I can enunciate a little better. Not like I could before, but it's pretty good. I can notice. I can I can speak a little more clearly. It's, it's good. It has been a long, painful journey, and I'm not done yet. I have eight more doctor's things to do. Yikes. So, space eth <laughs> see, I messed it up now. Space ethicists. Space ethicists. Space ethicists. Um, space ethicists explore the potential rights of extraterrestrial life and the ethical considerations of terraforming or the societal implications of space travel. And now we're getting a little closer to the branch of space theorists um, that I would fall under and where my research kind of falls within. In terms of how I connect space ethics with the idea of space as a finite environment in need of stewardship, if you consider the phrase, just because you can doesn't mean you should. So it's pretty simple. Um, the idea underscores the critical need for ethical discernment within human space endeavors. Just because you can doesn't necessarily mean that you should. I believe that we need to spend more time questioning the implications of our actions, not just based on technical feasibility, but also in consideration of long-term environmental and societal impacts. Recall that I argue that space is an environment in, in need of protection, and this is not my idea, it's not a new idea, but it's not an idea that we hear a lot about. So it's one of the key points uh, within the theory of astrofeminism is that uh, space is an environment in need of protection. And another key point uh, within the theory of astrofeminism is simply because a woman is in a position of power does not mean that female-centric priorities are being carried out. So I think this is really important, so I'm going to say it again. I believe that we need to spend more time questioning the implications of our actions and not just operate based on technical feasibility. Simply because we can does that necessarily mean we should?
And there's like a, ain't no party like a crow party. So crow party don't stop. I love crows. So if, if you hear this crow, he is calling out. Now he's going to be quiet. I had this idea if you apply Morse code um, over the calls of these crows, I did it, and I, well, not because I had a choice really, but because um, if you just listen, you can hear the pattern. And then they have a certain inflections that they use. So this call, you can hear it right now. It's, um, they'll do three, like Morse code, and then they'll pause, and they'll do three. But it's at that, ka, ka, ka. And then they have all these clicks and all these different things, and I just think that um, in the morning I live on like a, what I call like a crow freeway. So they fly southwest every morning um, at uh, sunrise. And you can see them all going southwest at sunrise. And they have a greeting. They will do three of those caw, caw, caw. You can hear them. So that means hello and crow because it's how they greet each other. You can hear them. So hear how the caw is shorter. So he'll do like five, then he'll do a long one. So it's interesting. I don't, I wonder if someone has um, been able to, you know, I don't think of it as decoding it because it's so clear that it's like they're speaking in crow language and it's just like if you took Morse code and you superimpose that over, it's, I don't know. Anyways, I, I didn't mean to talk about crows and crow theory. Um, crow vocalization theory but um <laughs> as you can hear it because sometimes it just happens so um yeah i've talked about um my concerns about you know the environment is based and the societal impact and the response has been really dismal i've been called like really mean names and um also been accused of um, being against progress which uh, is not true at all and then the other thing that'll hit me with is that i'm a communist <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's bananas. Um, I'm not a communist. I'm not against progress. I'm just advocating for a more careful consideration of space as an environment that's really critical to Earth. So if we like kind of divide up space and we think about like Leo, Mio, and Geo, um, that, that part of space that's close to us is like really, really important and we should protect it and be careful with it and um you know not just act like it's like a wasteland that doesn't matter and that's all i'm saying i was thinking about this recent situation where the delaware court found elon musk's compensation package valued at 55.8 billion to be excessive And the decision to reject the pay package, you know, how could it impact Musk's standing as the richest man? So, on one side, you can understand where, you know, his compensation is justified because he's made really significant contributions. I don't even need to tell you the companies he leads because we already know them. But isn't compensation tied to performance metrics and stock options, meaning that 
Musk's financial gain is directly linked to the company's success, aligning his interests with those of the shareholders. So, you know, he earned this because of what he created and his vision, so who are we to say he can't have it, even if it sounds like kind of bananas? It sounds like so bananas, it's like fruit salad. Like, it's like beyond bananas. It's like fruit salad. So, on the other side, if you think about, well, massive compensation packages contribute to wealth inequality, eh, I don't, uh, obviously, but I, I don't know if I would apply that. Could the wealth be more equitably distributed within the company? But eh, I don't know if I agree, because then you're looking at every company that's profitable, that the wealth at the top should go to all and yes that's a good idea in theory but not really in practice it's not really fair it's not really reasonable so if we consider you know corporate governance responsibility and the broader economic systems role in wealth distribution you know it raises questions about the value and recognition of leadership versus the collective effort of all employees who contribute to a company's success but I, I don't know. So in terms of my research, I would look at more of why I don't have a problem with Elon Musk. Like personally, I've never met him. I don't know him. I admire what he's put together. And I think that um, my research and all of the work that I do, it's just thinking about why don't we have an equal amount of women that are at that level where, you know, they can get turned down for $55.8 billion and would the reaction be the same? So I, I think that Musk and Bezos, um, they're great in the sense that they've created this wealth. This is the American dream. Um, I don't know at any time in history where men have been really successful and there aren't always people that are, you know... <laughs> anti or against it but I don't feel that way I just look at what are the what are the barriers to obstacle for obstacles for women why don't we have an equal amount of billionaires that are female why don't we have an equal amount of female founded space companies or you know activities in space and what why why don't we see that and how can we further that path so I think that a lot of people when they hear about feminism they immediately think that it's against men and I don't think that at all I think that's kind of weird um, because it's not my view my view is how can we give women the same opportunities and I know a lot of men would say well you do and in fact you know women are promoted and doing all of these different things and there's a CEO of this space company and she's a girl yeah okay but, like, that's just the thing is that simply because a woman is in a position of power, it doesn't mean that it's a female-centric priority. So we really need to kind of separate those two and also look at male CEOs if they were enacting female-centric priorities, you know, on the other hand. And I don't see a lot of that. So, um, yeah, I don't know what you think about $55.8 It's excessive, so no one's arguing that. But does he have the right to it? Do we have the right to tell him no? Are we supposed to say, well, it's too much. You have to split it equally with your employees. No, because that's not done in any other American company. Look at Big Pharma. Um, 
everyone talks about the Sackler family, but like, yeah, what did anyone say that at Pfizer we have to make sure every employee receives um, equal compensation? You know, who who is the CEO of Pfizer? Do you know the name of that guy off the top of your head? The CEO of Pfizer, his name is Albert Borla. I know his face. You know why? He's in my collage that I made of my um, in my book, the Astrofeminism book of wealthiest people in the United States. I know that guy's face. He's an American Greek. Am I reading this night? Veterinarian? No, I need my glasses. Hang on. Vet. Yeah, dang. He's a veterinarian. And the chairman and chief executive officer at Pfizer. He joined the company in 1993. Dude, he's only 62. All right, go for you, Albert Borla. Yeah. And he went to Aristotle University of Thessaloniki. Is that not like the best name ever? And he's married to Miriam Alchon. Okay, so just take this dude, Albert Borla. It's not like everyone hears his name. This is one of the arguments I make in the book and why. It's not currently available, but when it is, you should totally read it. Because A, it's not boring. B, it doesn't suck. (laughs) I'm kidding. I had to read so many academic (laughs) papers and so... When I sought out to like write this book, it was really hard to disseminate all of the research that I did and try to make it so it was like palpable, so it didn't put you to sleep as the reader. So I thought like, how can I, you know, share what I learned but not make it so that it's so boring? So I hope I was able to achieve that and I try to make it fun and break it up and use popular culture. I even um, have, well, I'm not going to tell you, but Tupac is in there. I got... Alice in Wonderland, I got um, Joe Rogan, I got, you know, I try to make it fun. Um, but, okay, let's go back to that. Why don't we hear about Albert Borla every single day? Why do we, we don't even know this dude's name. But we hear about Elon Musk and Bezos every day is it because that they want to be in the news every day i don't know but but one of the things that i talk about in my book is like we have to look at more of the big picture of who has all the money because it's not just these two people and how did they get that and how did they get there and is anyone arguing that pfizer needs to make equal you know shares for all their employees no so that that is not a logical argument. Um, so, let me see where we at in time. Okay. So, by the non-existent powers in me, I appoint you as an honorary space theorist for the day. So, put on your space theorist cap. And here are some big questions for you to consider. Should we attempt to colonize other planets without first understanding potential disruptions? Are we prepared to manage the long-term effects of space debris? 
if we have the capability to explore or colonize other celestial bodies, does that automatically grant us the right to do so? How do we weigh the pursuit of knowledge against potential harms or disruptions to those environments? If we begin mining asteroids or other planets for resources, who decides how these are distributed? Could the extraction and sale of off-Earth resources exacerbate wealth inequality here on Earth? Oh, duh. How can we ensure equitable distribution? And this goes back to mm, Outer Space Treaty, which we learned before. It's supposed to be equal for all. It can't be because private sector, they raise the funds to go out there and do this stuff. And they raise the funds and they want the payoff. And that's fair. And that's good. And that's how it works. But, hmm. The payoffs from space can be really, really big in the trillions. So, of course, it's going to exacerbate wealth inequality. What is our ethical obligation to protect and preserve the environments of other celestial bodies? <laughs> we don't even take care of our own planet. We treat our planet like a dump. So, yeah, nada. Simply because they might not support life as we understand it, does that mean that they are devoid of intrinsic value? Wow, bro, that is pretty deep. That's why you can see, I don't need to, to do the marijuana or, got everyone in California, it's legal here, and so they're all on it. I don't need to do that because I already have enough of these kind of thoughts in my brain. It's like, um, when you're a space theorist, you know, like picture you're going up from earth and you're thinking about things in a very kind of a broad way and so one time I met a girl I really liked she was I was so inspired by her work and she lived in Buenos Aires and I went down there I flew down to Buenos Aires to have coffee and um, I once flew to Paris because I watched this uh, documentary-esque film by I'm going to call her Agnes Varda, but I think in French she would say Agne, Agne, I don't know. I've got to put it on my coolest. But anyways, I was so inspired by this film that I went to Paris to film on the same street that she did. Because um, I wanted to cut the footage together. Or like, um, I wanted to learn this very specific way of fruit cutting. Let me ask Asterix. Asterix, what is the specific way of cutting fruit in Thailand? It's like a very ceremonial kind of way to cut fruit. This traditional Thai art known as Kesa Luk involves carving fruits and vegetables into beautiful shapes and intricate designs. It's not just about cutting fruit for consumption. It's about transforming ordinary fruit into stunning, delicate pieces of art. The practice dates back to the 14th century and was originally used to decorate the royal tables. It requires skill, patience, and a deep understanding of the intricate details involved in the carving process. Artists use specialized carving knives to carefully sculpt the fruit, often transforming it into flowers, leaves, or intricate patterns that reflect nature and traditional Thai designs. While it's a ceremonial and decorative art, 
It's also a way of showing respect and hospitality, turning the presentation of fruit into an expression of good wishes and honor to the guests. This art form is taught in culinary schools in Thailand and is passed down through generations, reflecting the importance of beauty and meticulousness in Thai culture. Asterix, what is the name of the mermaid people in Thailand where their eyes were actually studied by scientists to be like they had an extra covering and there's a specific island uh, off the coast of Thailand where they, lit, they live uh, more in water than outside? The people you're referring to are the Mokan, also known as the sea gypsies or sea nomads. They are a semi-nomadic Austronesian people living along the coasts of Thailand and Myanmar with a significant population around the Surin Islands. The Mokan are known for their exceptional free diving abilities, spending a significant amount of their lives in the sea, engaging in activities like fishing and gathering marine food. Their underwater vision has been a subject of scientific study. Researchers found that Mokan children have remarkable underwater vision twice as clear as European children of the same age. So the point there was that as a space theorist, I see the world as a very small place. And so whether it's going to meet someone for coffee in Buenos Aires or going to Thailand to learn this uh, fruit carving or to take a look at these, uh, the Mokin, these um, sea gypsies, uh, I'm ready to go do it. So it's, to me, it's the same in my mind as like, going to take an Uber to Van Nuys, like there's no difference. And I think it's definitely an advantage to see the world as such a small place and to really see how we're all connected and that I see the world as um, how, how the similarities um, of all of humanity instead of the differences. Um, so that's one of the ideas of astrofeminism and something that I wanna convey. And so now we're gonna move on to the next point. I finally got around to listening to the Lex Friedman interview with Jeff Bezos. And I don't know if I've missed it over the years. I mean, as a space theorist, um, I listen to, I try to keep up, um, obviously not just what's happening in space, but space culture. And uh, I see, you know, some like snippets of whatever you guys see of Jeff Bezos, but I've never found an interview with him that was so in-depth and where it wasn't like a kind of a commercial aspect to it where anyone was trying to, you know, promote something. And um, it was just, it was really refreshing to hear a conversation with him. Uh, Jeff obviously likes Lex. They spent time together uh, touring uh, the different Blue Origin facilities. And so I love it when I'm wrong. I love when I think I know something and then I find that I didn't or I, I didn't understand it all the way or that, you know, it's much more nuanced because I think that that is in alignment with a lot of what my philosophy on life is, is that um, I've talked about that painting, Gabrielle and her sisters, is, you know, you think you know something, you think you're understanding it and you do see it and understand it, but there could be a lot of other things happening in the background that you don't see and understand. So I 
one of my favorite things about this interview, and I haven't even finished the whole thing yet because like I've shared in the past, I have very, very limited time. And if I'm going to listen to a podcast or I'm going to watch something, it has to be really good. And this is so good that I really want to be present. Like I don't listen to stuff as I'm like doing something else. I mean, I listen to the podcast while I'm hiking, but I mean, like I really wanted to think about everything that Jeff was saying. And um, so we're going to talk about theoretical physics and cosine later, not right now, because that was really cool. I was excited. Um, but one of the things that Jeff kept emphasizing throughout the Lex Friedman interview was that there are a thousand different ways to be smart. And when Jeff meets people, he's always looking for the way that they're smart. And he said that that's one of the things that makes the world so interesting and that it's not like IQ is a single dimension, that there are people who are smart in such unique ways. And I feel like... So the, the more that you learn and the more that you understand, the more you become aware of how little you know and understand. And so... I can really spot someone who is intelligent by their able to recognize the limit of understanding. And on the other hand, I can spot someone who is not very intelligent, as I love Joe Rogan, he, call, he calls them the nine volt brains, because <laughs> so many people uh, so many people are functionally illiterate with such a low IQ <laughs> that Joe Joe Rogan says they're the, the nine volt brains. And um, one way that that you can you know really tell that someone has a nine volt brain is uh, they think that they know everything and they have the answers for everything and they're certain. And uh, one of my favorite quotes is by Voltaire, where he said, certainty is absurd. And it's just so succinct and it's so clear of, you know, when you think you know everything, you're, <laughs> you're not really getting it right. First of all, you know, if we go into um, the rules of Buddhism, that everything is in flux, Life is suffering, everything is in flux, everything is changing. That's one thing that we know for sure is that everything is changing. So if you think you know everything, how is your knowledge of 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago going to be relevant to whatever is happening today? So you can't apply the same knowledge and expect it to be, um, you know, perfect in alignment, perfectly in alignment, because even in terms of science, you know, what we know and understand um, changes. I'm not talking about the laws of science, like, you know, the things that we know for sure, but I'm saying, like, that our understanding evolves. And I think it's one of the most exciting things about being human. And I think one of the things that was aware, what I was aware of with the Bezos interview was how surprising it was to hear that Jeff is really super enthusiastic. I would say that I, my takeaway was a very female centric perspective in the idea that like, 
he really wants to incorporate different ideas, understand different ways of thinking, bring in different, you know, um, levels of intelligence or different perspectives. And it was really, um, it was so refreshing. It was so refreshing. Uh, I've mentioned before, um, before I went back to school, that I had an incredible opportunity to work uh, in the creative department on some of the like most beloved film franchises of all time. So I got to work on Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and not in the production end. I'm talking about servicing the film, the artwork to other countries. I think people don't really realize how much work goes into um, after the film is made. There's still a lot of work to be done and we don't get credit um, a lot of a lot of people work on movies and you don't ever see their name. And so, um, you know, this experience working on these different projects, it really obviously it fueled my imagination and it taught me the power of storytelling and these insights that I gained from this time, you know, in the creative department, they really aligned with what Bezos kept emphasizing that people are smart in many different ways and it's it's just this concept that really resonates with me especially I've talked before about how I've traveled to um, almost 70 countries give or take um, mostly by myself and witnessing you know all of the different talents and the skills that people have all around the world and how they bring their own unique intelligence to the table. Um, it's really, it's really such an inspiration. I want to tell you a funny story. Um, so I was in Dar es Salaam on my way to Zanzibar. And you know, when you're traveling, you don't always have control about when you end up in the new country. I remember I ended up in Morocco um, I was in Marrakesh and it was n nighttime and the currency exchanges were closed. This is in uh, 1990, let's see, 90, 96, 98, mm, yeah, before, before 98, 90, between 1990, 96 and 98. So not everywhere took credit cards. There was no digital, you know, that wasn't a thing. So I was in Dar es Salaam in 2012 and on my way to Zanzibar. And so uh, I ended up in arriving in Zanzibar um, at night alone. Um, I, I ended up arriving in Zanzibar at night and the hotel was supposed to send a car. Uh, they didn't. I waited for about 20 minutes and so I had to take a ride from, you know, the guys that are there when you get off the plane. There were no yellow cabs. <laughs> there were no Ubers. This was not uh, a thing. And so I, I, I picked one of the guys. I get into the car with my little bag. I have a rule when I travel. So I only travel with a carry-on and then like a little backpack or something. So I don't, I don't really bring a lot with me. Um, Whenever I see people at airports with like 20 different Louis Vuitton luggage set, I'm just like, oh, it's so silly. Um, unless maybe you're moving to another country, but I don't know. I, I travel with a carry-on. That's it. So 
it's very dark when, well, in 2012 when you arrive in Zanzibar at night. And I remember something similar when I, I arrived in Denpasar in Bali at night because you get a, you don't really get a good feel for the place because you can't see anything. I'm sure Bali is so different now. I was lucky enough to be in Bali in 99, 2000. And uh, wow, it was so cool. Anyways, so it's really dark and the only light is coming from fires that people have built, which is a little... It's a, it's a little concerning. You're like, ah, it's dark. I'm not sure. Are we going the right way? Of course, there's no uh, GPS. There was no cell phone that I had. I did have a satellite phone for emergencies, but um, there was no way for me to like, oh, I'm going to go on Google Maps and check where I'm going. No, that wasn't a thing. So it's about 20 minutes, dirt roads, bumpy. There's a lot of, the, the only thing I smell is like smoke from these fires and um. We're progressively going into like more bumpier roads, alleys, darker, less people. And I'm thinking, this doesn't feel right. I always listen to my intuition. I've had really good luck traveling alone, um, listening to my intuition. I don't go out at night. <laughs> this is an exception here because I landed at, and, and I, I had to travel at night. But generally after dark, I don't go out. Um, unless I'm accompanied, you know, with people, friends and stuff, but, uh, when I travel alone, no. And so my intuition is like screaming. It wasn't whispering. It was like, this is bad. Now I can't run out of the car cause I don't know where to go. And then it gets worse. The car, um, he doesn't pull over. We're just in the middle of the road and he turns off the car. And I'm thinking this is where I die. This is it. I, um, you know, hubris. I had the feeling that I could travel alone and that I'd be okay. And as a woman, what was I thinking? And I'm never going to see my family again. And I'm trying to stay calm. But you know when you get nervous and you feel in your stomach that like, like, and I, I remember I'm in the car and I'm, I, I pinch myself like on the leg really hard to stop myself from crying. And um, the guy takes out a knife. Yeah, the driver took out a knife. It's pitch black. The car is off. He takes out the knife. And I'm just kind of went into like fight or flight. Like I'm, I'm going to get hurt. I, I'm a girl. I don't know jujitsu. I'm always like cursing myself that I don't know jujitsu. Um, I have no way to defend myself, and uh, I, I'm not a good fighter. <laughs> um, okay, this is it. Like, it's over. So I try to ask him where we're going, why is the car off, and he doesn't speak any English, and um, he pulls something out of his pocket. And I can't really see, but I'm waiting for, like, you know, the car to get surrounded, what's going to happen to me? I'm thinking of the worst possible things. If you can think of the worst things, I'm thinking of that and worse. And it's a couple seconds that go by, but it feels like still in my mind when I think about it, like, you know, hours in slow motion. He pulled out of his pocket an apple. And he begins to slice the apple. And then he turns around and offers me a slice of the apple 
and my hands are shaking. I take the apple and I'm thinking like, is this a joke? Is he doing this before I get murdered? Or, you know, worse in that order of bad things happen to me and then I get murdered. Oh my God. No, he slices the apple. He eats the apple. And then he turns the car on and proceeds to take me another 10 minutes down this bumpy road in Zanzibar at night. And then we arrive and there are these two like big, you know, kind of pillars and these like, you know, fire torch thingies. And we go down this paved driveway and we end up at this like little thatched, you know, hut. And I see the name of the hotel and he pulls the car over and I get out and I, I pay him and I get the bag and I'm just like in between like almost gonna throw up and like so happy I'm not dead and uh, check in ask them what happened with the ride <laughs> of the person that was gonna pick me up from the airport they don't know there's no reason no explanation and I'm um, I went to sleep and then in the morning I wake up and I'll share a photo from the trip because Zanzibar is without a doubt one of the most beautiful places in the world I've ever it's so extraordinary it was so beautiful and then once you you know once I met the people there and was able to see you know everything in the light it was so much less scary and I share that story because I think it's there's so much you know uh, uncertainty and fear there's so much fear right now um, there's so there's so many bad things happening in the world every day and when you peel back all of these different layers really you know we're the same people are the same people are they want to be safe they want to make sure they're able to eat they want their families to be well they want they want um, access to safe housing you know good education um, they want better for their children most parents and once you really start to see that you see how similar we are and Space Witch Podcast, where we talk about what's happening in outer space and witch stories. I'm your host, Layla Martin, and just remember, there are no witches in outer space. Mm-hmm.